This is The Guardian. Well, look, as you know, and I know well, um, a week's a long time in politics and I... Yeah. Just heard from Number 10 confirmation that Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, has been officially sacked. That's the security detail just opening the door for... David Cameron! What a day. I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and this is Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today is Gavin Barwell, a Conservative peer and former Number 10 Chief of Staff who's seen a few reshuffles come and go in his time. Hello, Gavin. Good afternoon, Gabby. I'm not sure either of us has um, seen a, a reshuffle quite this surprising before. And the, the sacking of Home Secretary Suella Braverman wasn't much of a shock, I suppose, given the, the ugly scenes of far-right protesters marching on the Cenotaph at the weekend following her controversial article in The Times suggesting the Met had essentially been too soft on pro-Palestinian marches. But the comeback, David Cameron's return to government as Foreign Secretary, like a sort of season one character dramatically being brought in for the finale, that, that was more of a surprise, wasn't it? Did you see that one coming? I did not know. I mean, I, I think, as you say, Suella going um, entirely predictable. Uh, if a prime minister constantly has a minister who says things that the prime minister is not prepared to repeat, then they're not going to survive long. I did predict that he would maybe bring someone with some experience back because there have been so many, so much turnover in the Conservative Party. There's not a huge queue of fresh talent waiting to come in. But I hadn't alighted on David Cameron as one of the possible names. I wonder when David Cameron found out. I mean, as you say with Suella, she'd been pushing the boundaries for a long time, you know, to the point that people were wondering if she was actively trying to get sacked. Then there were rumours that, you know, there'll be resignations if she went, junior ministers resigning in her honour, so to speak. Do you think she really is a threat to him from the backbenches or is her support there overstated, do you think? I don't think anyone is a threat to him from the backbenches. I think the Conservative Party understands that it would look utterly ridiculous if it tried to change Prime Minister again. So whilst there's a lot of unhappy people and people that are pretty fatalistic about their prospects, I think Sunak is there until the election. Coming back to, to Cameron for a minute, he obviously brings a breadth of experience at the top with him that no one else in Cabinet has, not even his, his current PM, I mean, arguably. But he's still a calculated risk given all the baggage he brings, isn't it? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said necessarily, as Foreign Secretary, I wouldn't have said Cameron's history on foreign policy was really his strongest point. I mean, he lost a referendum on Europe, had a disastrous war in Libya, you wouldn't necessarily have been the job that you put him in. And yet it's the job he was supposedly lobbying to come back into when your boss, Theresa May, was in number 10, wasn't it? But I think there's very few cabinet jobs that you can do from the House of Lords. And Foreign Secretary is probably one of them. And I think the Foreign Secretary's primary role is relationship building. You know, it's about relationships with other foreign ministers and sometimes with heads of government. And he clearly has a lot in the bank there. You know, he's very well known around the world and he's good. I think David is strong at that kind of personal relationship side of things. So I think you're, you're right that it's not without risk, but I think it's quite a canny appointment. I mean, we'll come on to this a bit later, I guess. I, I don't think it's going to transform the political situation in this country for a moment. But I think it's hard for anyone to argue that this doesn't look like a stronger cabinet today than the one we had a couple of days ago. I thought it was interesting that in his, his statement on, about his return, I mean, he did talk about foreign policies and some quite obvious things, you know, standing by our allies at a time of change and conflict around the world and all the rest of that. But he, he did also talk about helping to present the party for the next election. It sounded like he was there to offer advice at home to kind of help with political management, not just 
foreign policy. I mean, after all, he has fought, you know, two general elections. But it did make me wonder how they're going to manage that relationship. If you think about their initial relationship, it was this kind of, you know, Cameron was the master and Sunak was the young protege. And then the kind of young Jedi turned against his master over Brexit and their their roles reversed. And now suddenly Sunak's in trouble and Cameron's sort of back to the rescue. How's that going to, what do you think that first cabinet meeting is going to be? It could be a little bit awkward, couldn't it? Yes, I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, if you think back to Rishi Sunak's conference speech, he was basically arguing that for the last 30 years, nobody's been taking long-term decisions in the interest of the country apart from him. So he clearly didn't have the idea of bringing David Cameron back into his government when he delivered his conference speech. I think the challenge David's going to have, which William performs so effectively for him, is if you're a, a former leader, offer the advice in private, but supportive in cabinet and in public. That's the, That seems to me to be the sort of way that you've got to approach these things. You know, Cameron did his five years in coalition with the Lib Dems. He's not, you know, he's a naturally quite consensus minded person, I would say. Rishi Sunak's not particularly confrontational. You could sort of imagine them making it work in the way that as you said, Cameron and William Hague did when Hague was, Hague was foreign secretary. But he does bring with him political baggage too, you know, austerity, Brexit, his lobbying activities for the firm Greensill Capital when he was out of Parliament. And he's been critical of some recent Sunak decisions in return. I mean, you know, he said he wouldn't have scrapped HS2. Do you think, I mean, Labour's going to have a field day going back through all of that, aren't they? Yeah, no, they, they'll they'll definitely try and make fun with all of that. And the overseas aid issue, I guess, is another where that's within his ministerial responsibility that he's taking on. It's almost inevitably the case that if you bring someone back who's been a very senior politician, there's going to be points of difference. And Cameron acknowledged that in the in the statement that he made. But he clearly, I think, from Sunat's point of view, he thinks Cameron can be an asset and help reset the government. And from David's own point of view, I suspect he thinks this is an opportunity to do the job. And if he's seen to do it well, it sort of slightly resets his own reputation. He's not had an easy time of it over the last, as you say, over the last couple of years. Yeah, I wondered if for him there's a kind of element of redemption in it. You know, he's, if he makes a success of this last year in government, then his career doesn't end on on a failure, really. It ends on, well, maybe it ends in an election defeat, but at least you know, at least he would have had a, a year in government to do something that, that left a mark behind Nearly everybody who's prime minister, they sort of get defined by the big event that happens in their premiership. You know, if you're Tony Blair, it's the Iraq war. If you're David Cameron, it's the Brexit referendum. If you're Theresa, who I work for, it's the kind of logjam and the failure to get Brexit done. And they obviously are frustrated by that because they've done 101 things and they find it very difficult when anyone, everyone just sees them through the prism of that one thing. So I think from David's point of view, if he can be seen to be good foreign secretary for the country for the next year, it, it does help him with that sort of longer term reputation. You can see why he's taken the job. I, think, I mean, there was anger in several European capitals, but not just in, in Europe, maybe in Washington, in Tokyo. In the immediate aftermath of the referendum, there was, you know, a feeling that Brexit had created a lot of problems for everyone else, that that David Cameron was held responsible for calling a referendum he couldn't win. Do you think all that's been forgotten now? Has he been forgiven? Those relationships will be a bit easier than they might have been in 2017. There's not the passion there that there was at the time, I think. So water has passed under the bridge. It's, I wouldn't say it's completely forgotten, but um, tempers have probably calmed on all sides. And obviously there's been quite a lot of change in the personnel. It's quite a long time. We're talking about seven years now. So some of the personnel he'd be dealing with won't, wouldn't be in the people that were directly affected at the time. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the reshuffle, uh, James Cleverley replaces Suella Braverman as, as Home Secretary. Cleverley, obviously the great survivor who's worked with May, with Johnson, with Truss, <laughs> someone whose name you hear a lot from Tory moderates now as a sort of potential leadership challenger they might be able to get behind. Although it's always been maybe a bit hard to work out 
where Cleverly actually sits or what he actually thinks. Do you think him coming to the Home Office means any kind of change in approach, tone, policy, or is it kind of more of the same but under someone who Number 10 trusts a bit more? Uh, Policy, no change. Tone, quite a big change. And a very welcome change as well. From my point of view, Suella Braverman, you can you, know, you can argue about some of the detail of the policies, but my main objection to her was the rhetoric she used in trying to sell those policies. It always felt to me that she was trying to stir up division and argument rather than trying to bring people together. And actually, you know, I think across the political spectrum, most people involved in politics recognise there is a real issue with illegal migration into our country that needs to be tackled. It's not just a problem here in the UK. You see the same issue in US politics over the US-Mexico border. You see it in the EU over the crossings from Tunisia into Italy and the West Balkans route. So this is a problem that nearly all advanced economies are experiencing. Everyone recognises we need to deal with it. And I think you're now going to have a Home Secretary who in tone tries to take people with him rather than trying to sort of force the argument. And that's a welcome change, at least from my perspective. He's obviously got a big test coming up on Wednesday with the Supreme Court ruling over the legality of the Rwanda policy. If that's ruled unlawful, and obviously we don't know at this stage, we're recording this on Monday afternoon, it could be a huge fight in the party over whether to drop it and try something else or pull out of the European Court of Human Rights. In April, Cleverly told The Guardian that European countries which are not part of the ECHR is a small club. I'm not convinced it's a club we want to be part of. But that was what he was saying as foreign secretary. Gavin, won't this be a core celebre for anyone who still supports Braverman, who would have wanted to pull out, which is a position she supported? Yeah, so I think it's going to be a big moment when we get the Supreme Court verdict. I mean, my experience of these things is it's not a binary outcome. It's not either a the policy is dead or the policy is completely lawful. There are lots of outcomes in between where the court says you could do this in certain circumstances, but you need to meet these tests. So we should wait and see on that. And I hope whatever the verdict is, we'll have a period of calm reflection. I mean, I was struck the other day, Gabby, when the the prime minister made some remarks about the progress that's been made on the numbers crossing via small boats. And actually, what I thought his statement demonstrated was that some of the other policies that don't get anything like the same media attention the returns deal with Albania, the cooperation on policing with France, the efforts to clear the Home Office backlog, they're working. I've always thought that the Rwanda thing is a little bit of a, it draws everyone's attention, but it's not actually the key policy in solving this problem. It's mainly for show. Yeah, it's mainly for, exactly. It's mainly to create a sort of political row over the principle. And I accept that, you know, there's a there's a potential deterrent effect there. How big that is, I don't know. But to me, the key has always been clearing the backlog and making sure that we've got the ability to remove people quickly to countries that we would argue are not unsafe countries that people have come from, like Albania. And if you can get that in place, you can make a big impact on the numbers, you know, even without um, the Rwanda policy. So I hope we'll we'll get a period of calm reflection from the government, whatever the verdict is in terms of how it proceeds. And having a new Home Secretary will probably help with that. Calm reflection. I dimly remember that. It feels like it's been a long time since we've had a great deal of that in British <laughs> long politics. Long overdue. Meanwhile, elsewhere, uh, Therese Coffey, who was, of course, a close ally of Liz Truss, one of the few remaining left, um, has left DEFRA. That, I think, has been on the cards for a bit. Um, more of a surprise, she's been replaced by the Health Secretary, Steve Barclay, which feels like a demotion for him. Victoria Atkins goes into the Department of Health, someone who I think most people would see as less abrasive than Barclay. It's a big clear out at 
health ahead of you know potentially uh, NHS winter crisis in the middle of a strike, a doctor strike. Does that? I mean, why? I wondered if that signals a different approach. Like number ten is finally going to settle with the doctors and has accepted that that's the only way to actually get waiting this down. Did you suspect that? That would be exactly my reading of it. I think that if you're going to do a deal, then you probably need a fresh person in place to sort of rebuild the relationship and get things back on an even keel. And it seems to me that the evidence of the last few months is that it's going to be impossible for the government to begin to bring the numbers down, which it needs to do before the general election, if the industrial action just drags on and on and on. So my reading of this would be that the government has decided it needs to find some way of bringing the strike to an end. And that's the rationale for change. And on a personal level, and I think it's always useful to the listeners to admit when you're a bit biased, Steve Barclay is a personal friend of mine. So I was pleased that he wasn't removed from government. I think it was probably right to have the change. But also, I think, right, he's he's an able person. And I, it was good to see him given another role in the cabinet. But I do have some personal bias there. Anyone else catch your eye who's moved up? during this reshuffle, we had a couple of other women ministers moving into quite serious positions. I think if you look at the combination of this reshuffle and the change that was made in September, if you look at uh, Vicky Atkins, Laura Trott and Claire Coutinho, you can see alongside the David Cameron move, which is the one that's going to get all of the headlines, you can see a sort of new generation of talented conservative women coming through there. They're all in pretty safe conservative seats and you could see them all playing significant roles on the conservative front bench for quite a way to come. And Laura Trott, of course, started out working for David Cameron. So. <laughs> yeah, but Sunet will be hoping that that, yeah, he's trying to convince the voters, if you like, that they can get change without having to change the party of government. So he'll want the government to be looking like a fresh team and bringing back the former prime minister doesn't necessarily help with that, but bringing in that new talent potentially um, into some quite significant roles in the government. Uh, he'll be hoping voters draw that conclusion from that. OK, let's pause here for a minute. And when we come back, we'll look at whether that strategy is actually going to work for Rishi Sunak. Welcome back. Now, this was a surprisingly big reshuffle. It didn't feel to me like the kind you put together on the back of a fag packet in a hurry in a crisis, given Sunak hasn't had this team in place that long. To start with, and we all thought he wanted some stability after the the constant moves under Johnson and Trust. But the face of it does feel very differently. I mean, it feels to me like Sunak's finally come off the fence a bit. He's dispensed with the sort of last big right winger. He's brought in people who were sort of close to his sort of old Cameroon friends, I suppose. It feels to me like this is a more of a blue wall than a red wall government now. I mean, I know we hate putting things in those crude terms, but is that how it feels to you, Gavin? Who'll be happy with this this sort of refreshed look and who won't? So I think the right of the party will definitely think this is a shift away from them. I, that's undeniable. You know, you still have got a number of significant figures there from all wings of the party. This It's still a reasonably balanced team. But if you're bringing back David Cameron, you're getting rid of Suella Braverman, you're bringing in... Laura Trott, Vicky Atkins, they're, they're going to see that as a shift back uh, away from the right, back towards the sort of centre-left of the party, inevitably. And a Remainer back in the Foreign Office as well. Yeah, I mean, I think at some point we have to get past these labels. Um, you know, one of the curious things about the next general election, Gabby, is that neither of our main political parties really want to talk about Brexit at all. So we're in a kind of post-Brexit phase where Everybody is sort of accepting the decision we've made and how can we make it work best. But nonetheless, what you just said is how 
some people, some some heart strong Brexiteers on the right of the party will look at that and think exactly as you've just vocalised it. Do you think he's made his own position safer or not, given that he was, you know, trailing quite badly in the polls going into this? He's got rid of someone who very definitely wanted his job. He's brought in someone who's already had his job and doesn't want it back, but he's promoted someone in Cleverly who's another potential successor. Do you think he's secured himself in this reshuffle? What I think you will see is that Suella will feel free to offer her view of where government policy should be going, particularly on the issues that she was previously responsible for. So he's going to have, I suspect, a vocal critic on the back benches as a result of removing her. But I don't think that that will lead to a sort of threat to his position um, in terms of, I think he's secure through until the next general election. She seems to have felt fairly free to offer her opinion the entire time she's been Home Secretary, never mind from the back benches. But I just wonder, does she now become a sort of irrelevant noise off? Do you think she carries a significant number of MPs potentially with her? What was her future for the next year or so if she still wants to run for the leadership after after the election? I, I don't think she's irrelevant because she clearly is one of the contenders in any leadership election that happens immediately after the general election. And she's going to use this period, I would presume, to develop a wider range of positions beyond just on the issues that she was responsible for as Home Secretary and try and position herself for that contest. But what I, what I don't think is that she's an immediate threat to him. It's really about what comes after him, assuming the general election result goes as it as it looks like it will. Talking of that election, Labour's initial response has been to say, oh, you know, you can't claim to be the candidate of change if you're going to bring back someone from 10 years ago. But if I was Keir Starmer, I wonder if I'd be a bit more worried about facing a cabinet that includes Cameron than one in, that includes Suella Braverman, just in, in terms of the number of unforced mistakes it might or might not make. Uh, I think sort of yes and no. So I agree with you in the sense that I suspect every Labour shadow cabinet member privately will think this is a more talented cabinet than the one it replaced. So in that sense, Sunak has strengthened his team. But I don't think they'll be too worried for the simple reason you you said at the start when you were introducing the discussion that you and I have seen a fair few reshuffles in our time. And I think we probably both agree that hardly any of them have ever fundamentally changed the political dynamic. You know, at at the start of the autumn, the Sunak team were briefing we were going to have the reset in September and then we were going to have the King's speech and we were going to have the autumn statement and we were going to have a reshuffle. And these were the moments that would change the state of politics, essentially, and get the Conservative Party back in the game. But the harsh truth is King's speeches and autumn statements and reshuffles very rarely do that. And I don't think that this one will, although I do think it leaves him with a stronger cabinet. And for the government of the country, that is a good thing. Let's hope so. Gavin, thank you very much as usual. Goodbye. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And if you just can't get enough of this reshuffle, do listen to our sister podcast, Today in Focus, where The Guardian's political editor, Bib Creera, will be talking to Michael Safi on Tuesday's episode. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian.